Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for coming out tonight. It's lovely to see real audiences in real time and real space again uh, for Temenos. Um, we have a tradition in Temenos. We light a candle for the, to, to, settle, to settle our minds and to think about where we are about to go, and we're about to go on the most uh, astonishing journey, I think, with Maggie Ferguson to the Orkneys and just to think about um, why we are here at all. Um, so I'm going to do that, and then I will introduce our speaker tonight. So please welcome with me Maggie Ferguson, who's going to talk to us about George Mackay Brown, the Orkney poet and author, whose centenary it is this year. Um, and we're delighted to hear her talk about him and his literary legacy. He was one of the foremost writers of the 20th century from Scotland, a friend of Kathleen Rain, um, and he produced an impressive body of work, including poetry, plays, autobiography, short stories, essays. And apart from short periods on the mainland, he spent his whole life in, in Stromness in Orkney. Um, Maggie Ferguson, who was his friend, uh, and she is the author of George Mackay Brown, The Life, the autobiography, which is on the table there. And Sean O'Hagan said in The Observer of it, George Mackay Brown's world, in all its wondrous ordinariness, has been brought beautifully to life in Maggie Ferguson's painstakingly faithful labour of love. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and currently the literary editor of The Tablet. So please welcome her tonight. Thank you very much, uh, Hilary. I'm always absolutely thrilled to be asked to speak about um, George Mackay Brown, but I am really especially thrilled to be asked to speak to a Temenos audience. Um, more than 30 years ago now, when I was 24 uh, and making my way as a journalist, I was sent to interview Kathleen Rain, uh, and we spent an afternoon together in her house in Poulton Square, and she talked about Temenos, and I told her how much I loved uh, Farewell, Happy Fields, and I still think that's one of the most beautiful evocations of childhood uh, I've ever read. So she was pleased about that, and she said uh, she hoped that I had had a country childhood, as she had. And I had to admit that I grew up in deep suburbia, South Ascot, Berkshire, and I felt that that didn't really strike the right note with Kathleen Rain at all. So I was very keen uh, to move the conversation on, and we found harmony again when we talked about uh, George Mackay Brown. I wish I could remember exactly how she described him. It was her equivalent of what my teenage daughters would call, they would say he was the real deal. Well, of course, she didn't say that. She said something much more elegant and beautiful, but that was... That was what she meant. He was, he was the real thing. Um, I'd just begun to read his poetry at that time. Somebody had given me a copy uh, of one of his books. And I was absolutely bowled over by his imagery. All George's imagery is very fresh and new, and yet it's so natural and true that it seems pretty well inevitable. Uh, it wasn't as if he'd invented his images, but he'd somehow discovered them. So 
he writes of sunset running a butcher blade through the day's throat. In April, a lark splurged through Galilees of sky, and as a fisherman drowned, the sea turned a salt key in his last door of light. Well, behind these poems was a poet who seemed to be both absent and present. He was absent in so far as he almost never used the word I, but he was passionately present in every single word he wrote. Uh, One of his very dearest friends uh, once described him as writing with involved detachment, and I think that's exactly right. So in the summer of 1992, uh, George had a novel, Vinland, coming out, and uh, the Times Saturday Review, the same uh, paper that had sent me to interview Kathleen Rain, sent me up to Orkney to interview George. It was late May, so the islands were absolutely spilling over with light. Um, in Orkney, in, in the high summer, it hardly gets dark. Uh, and I had, as I trundled between Kirkwall, the capital of Orkney, and Stromness, where George lived, in a bus, I had the most extraordinary sense of homecoming. Um, some of you will perhaps have had the same feeling. Uh, It had never happened to me before and I know it will never happen again but I felt that I had somehow arrived in a place I'd always known but I was here for the first time. Um, So I sat up reading George's uh, work, An Orkney Tapestry, really looking forward to meeting him in the morning. Um, But that first interview was a total disaster. He was so uh, shy that he could hardly answer my questions and I was quite shy myself uh, and I ran out of questions after about five minutes literally and he sat back in his rocking chair, leaned his amazing, he had this incredible big jaw on his long hands and hummed looking into the middle distance and I thought what am I going to tell my editor in London, you know, what am I going to say, but luckily Uh, I didn't have to go uh, straight home. I was there for four days. And the day after the interview, uh, I met George at Mass in the little Catholic chapel on the outskirts of Stromness. Uh, It was a tiny congregation. I think there were five of us. And he invited us all to come back to tea at his house. And in that kind of familiar company, he was totally transformed. Uh, He was witty. He was an amazing mimic. He was a very kind host. I remember him asking whether he'd like uh, like us to uh, whether we'd like him to boil us all eggs for tea. Um, and when I came to leave to say goodbye, uh, he said he had something he wanted to show me, and he got a piece of paper. Somebody had sent him from Edinburgh um, a sort of facsimile of a letter written by Mary Queen of Scots to her cousin, the King of France, the night before she died. And it was written in sort of old French. So I nervously admitted to him that I couldn't, I had no idea what it was she was saying. And he said, no, it's not the words that matter. He said, I thought you would be moved by the firmness of her script in the face of death. And that kind of was the beginning of our friendship. I felt that was, he was extending the hand of friendship So uh, I came home. Uh, The first day I was back 
in my flat in Battersea, I couldn't even bear to open the curtains. I just wanted to seal in everything that I'd seen in Orkney. Um, people think that people who've not been to Orkney think they can't bear the idea that there aren't trees or hardly any trees. But actually, because there are no trees and nothing blocking your vision, everywhere you look in the, those islands, which are, as Edwin Muir describes them, fluent in their shapes. Uh, Everywhere you look, you can see the horizon, you can see the curve, you know you're on a globe. Uh, it's extraordinarily beautiful. Um, and then there's this ex- amazing sense of history stretching back thousands of years uh, from the Le- Neolithic burial chamber at Maze Howe to the sunken wrecks at the bottom of Scapa Flow. Um, you have a sense all the time there that life is very short and very precious. And then, of course, I was bowled over by George himself. He was definitely the humblest man I've ever met, and I think almost certainly the most gifted. But in an age of concord and inner city trains, he was a poet as rooted in his landscape as Herrick or Herbert or John Clare or William Barnes. As Seamus Heaney put it, he transformed everything by passing it through the eye of the needle of Orkney. Well, um, a few days after I got home, an envelope arrived with a Stromness postmark, and there was a letter from George with little bits of news about the weather and who he'd seen and what he'd been eating. And then he said, I hope you will come back often, Maggie. I feel you belong here in Orkney. So that moved me very much and I went back as often as I possibly could finding all kinds of things to write about Uh, and then in the summer of 1995 just a few months before he died George agreed that I should write his life. The biographer Victoria Glendinning, uh, I I chatted to her about this and she said you must go up there, you must make sure you know every croft, every stone, every fishing boat that he sees. So that's exactly what I tried to do, uh, even trying to get to parts of Orkney that were really quite difficult to reach. So there's an island called Einhallow in Orkney, which means the Holy Island, and um, George wrote about it a lot. Uh, but it's uninhabited, it's surrounded by riptides, uh, it's pretty inaccessible. Anyway, I managed to find eventually a fisherman who would take me there, drop me off, collect me couple of hours later and um, I got back that evening really rather triumphant at having made this trip to Einhallow and I said to George I've been to Einhallow and he said that's interesting I've never been there (laughs) so he wrote about it even even places in Orkney he was writing about purely from his imagination but for those of you who haven't um, been to Orkney or would like to see what it's like I thought we'd have this little short slideshow and I'll read out some words of George's for each of the slides so this is Orkney, Orks the school of sleeping whales to those who glimpsed it first hills half sunk in the sea everywhere in Orkney there is the sense of age, the dark backward and abysm A city shower is a meaningless nuisance, a liquidity seeping into collar and trouser leg. 
In Orkney, on a showery day, you can see the rain, its lovely behaviour over an island, while you stand a mile off in a patch of sun. In the course of a single day, you can see, in that immensity of sky, the dance of sun, cloud, sea mist, thunder, rain, the endless ballet of the weather. It is impossible for an Orkney writer to be obscure. The light is too clear and hard. The realities of sea and soil and island folk, though mysterious, have a basic simplicity. I was born in Stromness on the main island of Orkney in October 1921. That little town was built to no plan and out of no aesthetic impulse, but by some stroke of chance what emerged was and remains beautiful. As a child, between the ages of five and eight, Stromness seemed to me a place very like Bethlehem, where a child might not be surprised to meet angels, shepherds, kings on a winter's night. Well, George was not a pure Orcadian. His mother had grown up in the Highlands and was a native Gaelic speaker, and she came over to work in the Stromness Hotel in her late teens and met and fell in love with his father, a postman and tailor. And they had six children, of whom George was the youngest. And they were poor, but never remotely self-pitying. George writes a lovely thing about his mother. He says, life was a gift. She was properly grateful. Stromness was his whole world. Amazingly, he was in his 20s before he went 15 miles down the road to Kirkwall uh, and stepped into Kirkwall's amazing Viking Cathedral of St Magnus. As a boy, the furthest he went out of Stromness was simply to follow the coastal path for about a mile out of the town to the Kirkyard, where he's now buried. And he later immortalised this in a poem, Kirkyard. A silent, conquering army, the island dead, column on column, each with a stone banner raised over his head. A green wave full of fish drifted far, in wavering, westering, ebb-drawn shoals, beyond sinker or star. A labyrinth of celled and waxen pain, yet I come to the honeycomb often, to sip the finished fragrance of men. To George, as a boy, Stromness seemed a very ordinary sort of place. In the summer, tourists would uh, arrive there for their holidays, and uh, he would sometimes watch as women from England set up easels on the street and started painting watercolours of uh, the town where he was growing up, and this puzzled him deeply. What could there be in our familiar surroundings worth painting, he once wrote. We in our town were the norm, they, the tourists, were creatures touched with poetry and romance, come from the enchanted places in the south. He was very puzzled too by the way these southerners spoke and their voices echo through his work in characters like the Laird's spinster daughter in his novel Greenvoe. A simply lovely morning, announced Miss Fortinbell. She spoke as if she was shouting into a gale. The islanders could never understand why the gentry spoke in such heroic voices. <laughs> Their own speech was slow and wandering, like water lapping among stones. It was only as he grew up that he began to be aware 
that although his parents were often too poor to afford even to buy their children shoes, his early years had been absolutely magical, providing him with a store of stories and characters and imagery that would feed his work for the rest of his life. We spend the last 50 years of our lives, he once wrote, raking among the treasures that to our childhood seem ordinary as pebbles, shells, sea pinks, stars. Well, I thought we should hear George's voice, because I think I speak a bit like Miss Fortin Bell, actually. So I think we should hear George reading uh, his poem Hamlevaux, which is really in memory of his father doing his postal rounds in Stromness. complex character. He was very charming, very witty, uh, very good at making people laugh on their doorsteps as he delivered their letters. But as George got to about the age of 10, he became aware that very often his father was walking up and down in his bedroom with the door closed, arguing out his troubles and problems. 
Depression is uh, common in Orkney, so much so that it has its own name there. This is what George writes. There is a trouble in the island that is called Morbus or Cadensis. It is a darkening of the mind, a progressive flawing and thickening of the clear lens of the spirit. It is said to be induced in sensitive people by the long black overhang of winter, the howl and sob of the wind over the moors that goes on sometimes for days on end, the perpetual rain that makes of tilth and pasture one indiscriminate bog, the unending gnaw of the sea at the crags. Well, by the time he was in his late teens, George himself was suffering from depression and would suffer from it uh, acutely for the rest of his life. He was also physically unwell. He had been a great footballer as a little boy, but he could no longer run. And when he was called in uh, for his medical checkup before doing national service, it was found that he had TB. So for the next 10 years, that's all of his 20s really, uh, these years were what he describes as years the locusts ate. He was in a kind of limbo between life and death either in the East Bank Sanatorium in Kirkwall or in bed at his mother's house. And yet, when he looked back on it, he realised that these years had been immeasurably precious to him. Uh, They were punctuated with what he described as very intense experiences, absolutely essential in his formation as a poet. Lying back on his pillows one winter's morning, he began to read the Orkney Inga saga, an account of three centuries of the Orkney earldom under Norse rule. One man in that saga intrigued George more than any other. Early in the 11th century, the earldom of Orkney had been divided between two cousins, Hakon Poulsen and Magnus Erlendsen. Magnus, the saga reveals, had not only all the attributes one would seek in a ruler and statesman, but also saintly qualities. For many years, he and Hakon got on well enough, but eventually their friendship was undermined by men of evil dispositions, and they fell out. In April 1117, the cousins met on the island of Egglesey, purportedly to negotiate peace. It had been agreed that each should bring with him no more than two ships, but Hakon sailed to the small island with eight, fully manned and armed. For the sake of peace, Magnus gave himself up for execution. He was beheaded by Hakon's cook, Lifolf, on Easter Monday, and he walked to his death, in the words of the saga, as cheerful as if he were invited to a banquet. His body was carried to Bercy, and the poor and afflicted of the Orkney Islands were soon flocking to it as a place of pilgrimage and claiming miracles. In 1134, he was acclaimed a saint. Amidst the tales of Viking intrigue and revenge, the martyrdom of Magnus shone out for George like a precious stone. For me, he wrote, Magnus was at once a solid, convincing, flesh-and-blood man from whom pure spirit flashed from time to time. His death by axe-stroke became the still centre around which much of George's thought and work now began to move. He once told me, George, that... uh, His novel Magnus, he thought, was by far his finest piece of prose writing, and I completely agree. It's an absolutely 
astonishing uh, novel, although uh, his novel Greenbow is probably more popular. Um, but and he was once when I knew him, a friend uh, asked George, "What was what was his favourite sentence of everything he'd ever written? Could he could he tell her his favourite sentence?" And he chose this. So Magnus Erlandson, when he came up from the shore that Easter morning, towards noon, to the stone in the centre of the island, saw against the sun eleven men and a boy and a man with an axe in his hand who was weeping. Well, while George was lying an invalid uh, in his mother's house, uh, history was in the making in Orkney. Uh, hundreds of Italian prisoners of war were sent up to Orkney uh, to live on a very bleak, windswept island called Lamb Home, uh, from which they were to construct the Churchill barriers to stop U-boats um, coming into Scapa Flow. Uh, in their homesickness, they asked some of these Italian prisoners whether they might be allowed to uh, take two of their Nissen huts and make them into a chapel. Uh, they salvaged timber from a wreck to make a tabernacle. They took stair rods from the same wreck to make candelabra. They saved up their cigarette money to buy heavy gold curtains to hang either side of the sanctuary. And one of them, Domenico Chiochetti, painted above the altar a Madonna and child, uh, copied from a postcard that his mother had tucked into his pocket as he went off to war. Well, George was incredibly moved by this. He wrote, he was by now writing regularly in the Orkney Herald, he wrote, where the English captive would build a theatre or a canteen to remind him of home, the Italian, without embarrassment, with careful, devout hands, erects a chapel. We who are brought up in the Calvinistic faith, a faith as austere, bracing and cold as the winds that trouble Lamb home from year's end to year's end, can hardly grasp the fierce, nostalgic endeavour that raised this piece of Italy, of Catholicism, out of the clay and the stones. The Italians, who fought weakly and without hope on the battlefield because they lacked faith in their ridiculous strutting duce, have wrought strongly here. Well, when George uh, wrote this, it looked as if the chapel might not survive the coming winter. In fact, it survives to this day, but it was so battered by wind and rain, uh, it was at that time beginning to fall apart. But, he wrote, the faith that created this thing will endear to the end of the world. So he was beginning to feel his way towards his eventual conversion to Catholicism. Another uh, wonderful thing that happened to George during this, his, his illness uh, came in the summer of 1946. Um, opposite Stromness, just over the water from Stromness, is the island of Hoy, which just means high in Norse, and it's the only mountainous Orkney Island, and it's very mountainous. But he'd never been there um, until he was in his early 20s, and he... Uh, went across with some friends and they drove through the mountains and came out the other side of Hoy at the um, uh, sea valley of Rackwick. Uh, and George was absolutely bowled over by this place. It had been a sort of burgeoning community uh, in Victorian Orkney with 
crofts bursting with 12 and 14 children. And then uh, somehow something had gone wrong. All the people had left. There was only one farmer left in the valley uh, and the crofts were all falling to pieces. And he became... um, He, he dwelt a, long, a lot on the fact that this was the fault of progress. Time and chance happened to the valley. Changes came in the way of progress that were considered to be good. A new local newspaper, the Orcadian, came, a single copy, and was passed from croft to croft. A young voice read it aloud while everybody sat round the open peat fire. Subtly, the notion of progress insinuated itself. This reading of newsprint was thought to be a great advance on the chanting of old winter stories. The iron cruisy lamp fed with fish oil, a dried reed pith for wick, went down before the paraffin lamp. It was more convenient to cook on a black enchantress range than over the open half-fire that never went out from generation to generation. Loaves from the bakehouses of Hamlevaux gradually ousted oatcake and beer bannock. To begin with, a slice of white bread was lingered over like cake, and on Sunday mornings, as a special treat, they had tea instead of milk and ale. The notion of progress is a cancer that makes an elemental community look better and induces a false euphoria while it drains the life out of it remorselessly. Um... Well, by, by this time, uh, the mid-40s, uh, George was writing poetry, a lot of poetry, uh, but he was very conflicted about it. <clears throat> he thought that to be a poet was a very lowly occupation compared with being a fisherman or a farmer. Uh, he felt it was far more valuable to cultivate fields than, in his words, to do something new with a language like T.S. Eliot. Um, He also believed that poetry was only any good if it was uh, accessible to ordinary people. Uh, To write poetry only understood by the intelligentsia was simply contemptuous. So um, in spite of everything that Orkney was offering him, I think now he did need to leave Orkney. If he hadn't been able to leave at this point, it's, it's, it's difficult to see quite what would have happened. At the end of his uh, posthumously published autobiography, George writes this. I think everyone, if he or she thinks about it at all, is aware of two wills at work. The personal will seeks security and power and love and success. But there is, I think, another will that we have no control over. A shaping divinity takes over from our rough hewings. It prevents us everywhere, as Eliot says but it also offers opportunities beyond anything we could have hoped for. Well, one of these providential opportunities came for for George just uh, after the war. In 1950, the poet Edwin Muir had been appointed uh, warden of New Battle Abbey, a small stately home outside Edinburgh, bequeathed to the Scottish people by Lord Lothian as a college for men and women who hadn't had the chance to go to university. A friend in Orkney urged George to apply, and reassured by the fact that Edwin Muir was in fact an Orkneyman by birth, he did so. His year at New Battle was, he would later reckon, 
by far the happiest of his life. For the first time, he was able to make friends with men and women of his own age, men and women like him passionate about literature. He was also emboldened to show his poetry to Edwin Muir, and Muir, not one to squander flattery, recognised in George's work what he called simply genius. Muir agreed to write the preface to George's first book, The Storm, now very, very rare, Um, and it was the only time he ever wrote a preface for anyone, and this is what he says. I'm glad to be allowed to write this forward, for I am a great admirer of George Brown's poetry. This is his first published collection, and I hope it will be followed by many more. His main theme in it is Orkney, past and present, and if only for that reason, this book should be on every or- in every Orkney house. But it is as a poet, not only as an Orkney poet, that I admire him. He has the gift of imagination and the gift of words, the poet's endowment. Dream of Winter, St Magnus in Egglesey and Gregory Hero are beautiful, original poems with a strangeness and magic rare anywhere in literature today. I read them first along with others when Mr Brown was at New Battle Abbey and what struck me then was their fresh and spontaneous beauty. Now, after reading them again, I am impressed as well by something which I can only call grace. Grace is what breathes warmth into beauty and tenderness into comedy. It is, in a sense, the crowning gift, for without it, beauty would be cold and comedy heartless. Um, So Muir was very, very encouraging to George, but also he knew how to be quite bracing as well when George needed it. So he writes this once when George has relapsed into depression and uh, TB uh, and was saying, you know, everything was hopeless. Muir wrote to him, Forgive me for preaching, but let me say that you are unlucky in one way, that you have a gift that most people pass all their lives without having, and that even in Orkney, even without the atmosphere which would help to nourish it, it is yours and you can do something with it to our own good and yours. So it was Muir who encouraged George to go on from New Battle to Edinburgh University as a mature student. But uh, I'm not going to talk really about his life in Edinburgh in a talk that's meant to be concentrating on on Orkney. Um, I do just want to dwell on one aspect of it. Uh, One evening when he was drinking in the Abbotsford Bar in Rose Street, George was introduced to a girl called Stella Cartwright. Uh, She was loved by many of those poets in 60s Edinburgh. Uh, In fact, she was known as the muse of Rose Street. And this is what he wrote about her. She was very beautiful. She was intelligent, but not to the extent that it becomes a strain or a pose. She liked art and music and literature, but not sufficiently to make a kind of religion of it, as happens so often nowadays. For everyone must give allegiance to some reality outside the cave of shadows that is oneself. What emanated from her was a kind of radiance, a rich essence on which poets and artists feed to sustain themselves. It is a rare, mysterious, innate quality that cannot be acquired. 
Well, for a very short time, uh, George Mackay Brown and Stella Cartwright were engaged, but the engagement was quite quickly broken off. Um, partly it was that George was so poor, he, he hardly knew how he was going to support himself, let alone a wife and maybe children. Perhaps even more serious was the fact that they both were drinking far too much and uh, in their cups they became extremely aggressive and nasty to each other. Also, Stella was really a city girl. She was, she was an Edinburgh girl, that's where she felt at home. Whereas George was becoming more and more clear uh, that he could only really fulfil his gifts in Orkney. In his short story, Sealskin, uh, he writes about a musician called Magnus Olufsen, who tours around the cities of Europe, preoccupied with images of the Orkney island Norde, where he spent his childhood. And there's surely much of George in Magnus Olufsen. He writes, All these years he had carried Norde with him wherever he went, but his memory had made it a transfigured place, more like a place of tapestry and an al- than an al- album of photographs. The great farmhouses and the small crofts had appeared in retrospect, sunk in time. The people, viewed from Paris, moved like figures in an ancient fable, simple and secure and predestined, and death rounded all. And so from Edinburgh, George returned to Orkney and then really, uh, really did hardly ever leave. Um, He lived in an extremely uh, modest flat, uh, kept a very steady routine. That's part of the way he kept on top of his depression. He got up in the morning, had his breakfast on a little kind of formica surface in his kitchen, then cleared away his breakfast and wrote on that same formica surface in pads of Basildon Bond writing paper with a barrow. He would write till lunchtime and, and then stop. Uh, and then in the afternoon, particularly in the summer, he was absolutely besieged by um, tourists and people wanting to sign his books and he was unbelievably patient and polite uh, with everyone who knocked on his door. So when Seamus Heaney went to visit him uh, in Stromness in 1982, He was amazed by the way, this is what Heaney writes, George lived at eye level with the community in Stromness. He was in no way like Larkin's shit in the chateau or Yates in his Galway tower. He was a man in a council house, going in for his dram with the locals, writing his letters in longhand, turning in copy for the Orkney newspaper. What I really respected about George, Heaney writes, was a combination of courtesy and seclusion. I don't mean that he was unforthcoming, far from it. There was a genuinely attentive, intuitive, sympathetic quality to him, a courtesy that came in part from the common culture of the islands and in part from his own nature. But there was a core of solitude as well, a still receiving station way inside, as quiet as a pool on a moor. Well, I think uh, that combination of solitude and conviviality is very um, very beautifully encapsulated in George's poem The Poet Therefore he no more troubled the pool of silence but put on a mask and cloak strung a guitar and moved among the folk 
Dancing, they cried, ah, how our sober islands are gay again since this blind lyrical tramp invaded the fair. Under the last dead lamp, when all the dancers and masks had gone inside, his cold stare returned to its true task, interrogation of silence. So almost all the time George was... um, writing, everything he was writing was in, came from Orkney. He was looking back to his childhood or sometimes delving further back into Orkney history. Um, just to give you a, a taste of that, one, I think one of his very best short stories, and he was a brilliant short story uh, writer, um, was, is called Witch and uh, is about a girl put to death during the 17th century witch trials in Orkney. And I'll just read you a little bit of it. So she's called Marion Eisbister. The day before her trial, she sat long in the afternoon with Janet Bawtree. Marion, it is the common thing to be first a child, then a maiden, and then a wife, and then perhaps a widow, and an old patient woman before death, but that way is not for me. Janet, There is much grief at every milestone. A young girl cries for a lost bird. An old woman stands among six graves or seven in the kirkyard. It is best not to tarry overlong on the road. Marion, yet with John the shepherd, I might have been content for a summer or two. And then the next morning. Because her toes were blue and swollen after the extraction of the cuticles, she could not walk, but with much difficulty. Therefore they bound her arms and carried her out to the street. There was much laughter and shouting at the sight of her naked head. Every alehouse in town had been open since midnight, and the earl having decreed a public holiday. All night people had come into the town from the parishes and islands. There was much drunkenness and dancing along the road to Galusha. As she hobbled through Laverock with her fingers like a tangle of red roots at the end of her long white arms, and her head like an egg... Some had pity for her, but the voices of others fell on her in a confusion of cursing and ribaldry and mockery, so that the holy words of Master Andrew Monteith could scarcely be heard. They came to Galusha by a steep ascent, and there, beside the stake, waited Piers with a new rope in his hand. With courtesy and kind words, he received Marion Eisbister from her jailers and led her to the stake. Piers, my hands are quick at their work. Thou hast had enough of pain. Only forgive me for what I have to do. Marion Eisbister kissed him on the hands. At this, some of the crowds shouted, The witch's kiss, the witch's kiss. But Piers answered, I do not fear that. It is usual on such occasions for the sentence to be read out first and thereafter ceremonially executed on the body of the criminal. But the clerk had not uttered three words when Piers secretly put the rope about the neck of Marion Eisbister and made a quick end. Those standing near saw her give a quick shrug and then a long shiver through her entire body. She was dead before the clerk had finished reading from the parchment. Um, I think that story illustrates quite well something else that Seamus Heaney said about George's writing. And I I think this is really important and I think he puts it so beautifully. 
he says, George's writing was cross-lit in a way that always appeals to me. On the one hand, there was a daytime reliability to it. The scenes and characters could be lifted from a documentary. On the other hand, they could have been dreamt. There was a gleam of the uncanny of the northern and western horizon. Well, sometimes George definitely had an uncanny feeling, not just for the island's past, but also for their future. In his novel Greenvoe, he imagines a week in the village of Greenvoe, which is meant to be Stromness, in the island of Helia. There's a growing awareness that a vast, unspecified threat hovers over the island. It's being sized up for something called Operation Black Star. Heavy machinery moves in, crofts are bulldozed. All the time he wrote this novel, George was prompted by a nagging sense of menace. And then just after it was published, North North Sea Oil prospectors began to turn their attentions to Orkney, and he was hailed as a local prophet. I think um, in talking about George and Orkney, it's maybe quite um, important to say a little bit about how, in some ways, he was a very untypical Orcadian. So despite his rootedness there, in some ways he, he wasn't like a lot of the other islanders. In 1961 he became a Catholic, which was a very, 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 very unusual thing for an Orcadian to do. And while he remained rooted in Orkney and he had his friends there and his family there, his relationships with the world outside Orkney were absolutely vital to him and in some ways some of them more important to him than his relationships uh, within Stromness. Every Saturday he spent the day writing letters, uh, patiently responding to requests from total strangers. He never left a, a letter unpublished and if somebody asked him for a poem he pretty much always knuckled down and just wrote them one and I I sometimes wonder how astonished people must have been when they got his replies. This was what he said to a mother who wrote to tell him that her son had committed suicide at Bristol University and could he write a poem for him? And this is what George sent her. It's called In Memoriam IK. That one should leave the green wood suddenly in the good comrade time of youth and clothed in the first coat of truth, set out alone on an uncharted sea. Who'll ever know what star summoned him, what mysterious shell locked in his ear that music and that spell, and what grave ship was waiting for him there. The greenwood empties soon of leaf and song, truth turns to pain, our coats grow sere, barren the comings and goings on this shore. He anchors off the island of the young. Um, in some ways, I think if George uh, knew that he was corresponding with somebody he was never ever going to meet, and he was confident he was never going to meet, he was able to reveal himself in a way he couldn't to uh, you know people who were apparently closer to him. He had, for example, a long correspondence with a GP called Dr Curtis, who lived in London, uh, and they exchanged letters about his depression, and George was able to say things like this. 
It's as if life was a drained honeycomb. There's no sweetness or relish or joy anywhere, and every thought is like a thorn. Well, the people in Orkney were astonished when his posthumous biography was, was published and he talked about his depression and said that he had very often longed for oblivion. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't square this up with the man he'd known. They'd known. Um, nor did anyone know, as far as I can make out, anyone at all in Orkney know, uh, that after breaking his engagement with Stella, he stayed in touch with her until her death in 1985. Um, and uh, one of the first things that happened when I was writing about him was uh, that I discovered his letters to her in a sort of sealed up box and then her letters to him and it's one of the most amazing correspondences I've ever read they're not love letters anymore uh, though sometimes they cast backward glances at the past and what might have been uh, but they do reveal a love that deepened over the years as these two gifted sensitive human beings supported one another through lives that were often painful Stella was an out-and-out alcoholic, and after George left Edinburgh, her life was overshadowed by unemployment, depression, spells in hospital and psychiatric wards. And through all of these, George buoyed her up with humour. They, they shared a great sense of humour, George and Stella, and by sharing beliefs that were sort of steadying and profound and gently bracing in February 1966, for example, Stella writes tearfully from Ward 1A of the Royal Edinburgh Hospital to say that her life has been a failure, not just for herself, but for all who've ever known her. You must not talk of your life being wasted, George replies. No person can say that his life is a failure until the moment of death, and even then, it is for God to say. Perhaps you, and this applies to me and a host of others, have gone about some things in a wrong way, not intending any evil. It is hard often to know the right way to act in this confused world. But this must be a comfort to you. I speak as one who has benefited often from your kindness and love and sweet nature. You have given much happiness to people who are hungry for it. <clears throat> this is the greatest gift of all. Charity deep disinterested love of one's fellow men a far higher gift believe me than the gifts of art or music or poetry marvellous though these are treasure your gift dear Stella for this would be a darker and a sadder world without you a little time after that Stella wrote to tell George she'd been turned away from Milne's Bar a place where she'd been loved and fated and admired and she asked him what she could possibly have done so wicked to end up on the rubbish heap at the age of 32. Dearest Stell, he writes in response, you've got to have a rhinoceros hide to endure many of the things that are said and done. Poor Stella, it is hard for a sensitive soul like you. However one hardens oneself, and one has to just to keep alive, the heart remains vulnerable. Be brave, be loyal to yourself. Dear Stella, not many people have to walk such a hard road. One feels desperate with solitude often. Then it is salutary to know that one is not alone, but is involved with mankind. And that means, as I understand it, that whenever you are brave, enduring, uncomplaining, then the whole world of suffering is helped and soothed somehow. 
This is sacrifice and fulfilment and renewal, an incalculable leavening. Well, for a long time, uh, George persisted in encouraging Stella to think that everything was going to turn out okay and that at the next spin of the coin, she would find happiness at last. Eventually, it became clear that this simply wasn't ever going to happen. But he continued to uh, write to her, send her letters and poems, and every year for her birthday, uh, he sent an acrostic poem using the letters of her name to form the first letters of each line of the poem. In the spring of 1982, um, she was in hospital, very gravely ill, with a viral infection, and it looked as if she might die. Uh, and George poured his feelings out into an acrostic poem for her 45th birthday. So once, in the 50s, there was this crazy chap, high among clouds, Edinburgh bound. Laurel seeking he was out of Orkney, long and salt his throat, among the stanzas that starred the House of Rose Street. Could he not bide forever in that beautiful city? A sweet girl one day rose a star to greet him. To him she was sweeter than rain among roses in summer, while poets like columns of salt stood round the Oak Abbotsford Bar. I now, going among the grey houses and piers of Stromness, hear that voice made of roses and rain still, and see through the storm clouds the remembered star. Well, Stella told George that was the most precious gift she had ever received and the loveliest poem he'd ever written for her. But it wasn't actually the last. There were birthday acrostics again in 1983 and 1984. And George wrote in 1984, Someday we must print all Stella's birthday poems in a little book and launch it upon the world. And everyone will say they liked each other more than a little. They sure did. George's last surviving letter to Stella was posted to her at the rehabilitation unit of the Astley Ainsley Hospital shortly before her death. Dearest Stella, he writes, I am sending a few words from the wild, windy Orkneys to my dear friend, hoping that she is warm and not feeling too low in that hospital. Nothing much happens to me but words. I am like a spider making endless webs. But I am always thinking of you, dear Stella. May your good angel look after you well. Well, it's a, a sad, if beautiful, um, tale, George and Stella. But it would be wrong, I think, to, to end this talk on a note of darkness or despair. Seamus Heaney uh, called George the praise singer. And for all his suffering, Orkney and its seasons and its weather never cease to give him joy. He describes in letters his thrill at walking through Stromness on a freezing night under a sky dancing with the northern lights, great shoots and firms rooted in the north and reaching to the zenith. And with the arrival of spring, his spirits always lifted. Isn't it lovely being in April, he wrote to a friend in 1982. The very wor word is one of the most beautiful sounds in the language. And two weeks later, it has been bitterly cold in Orkney for days, but yesterday and this morning were crowned with sunlight and one's heart dances with the daffodils. On the 16th of April, 1996, <coughs> ahead of George's funeral in St Magnus Cathedral on St Magnus Day, he lay in an open coffin in the Catholic Church in Kirkwall and a friend of I went, and I went to pay our last respects. And it seemed to me that his face was 
suffused with bliss. So had he been right to, to stay put in Orney? I put that question to Seamus Heaney and this was his reply. My hunch is that if George had made a move to develop, that's when we'd have sensed a weakness. Orkney wasn't just a setting, it wasn't just material, it was his gateway to the completely imagined. His work constituted itself in and out of this in equal measure. He strikes me as one who followed his true course. He didn't fail himself. Well, that, in a way, would be a nice uh, ending, but I just want to read you a few words that were found in George's uh, flat after he died, um, partly because I love them so much and partly because I, I, I have a feeling, I hope I'm right, that Kathleen Rain would have loved them too. I have a deep-rooted belief that what has once existed can never die, not even the frailest things, spindrift or clover scent, or glitter of star on a wet stone. All is gathered into the web of creation that is apparently established and yet perhaps only a dream in the eternal mind. And yet too, we work at the making of it with every word and thought and action of our lives. insight into deep, deep sources of George Mackay Brown's inspiration and bringing us, uh, bringing this whole world to life. Um, re- remarkable to think of the way he was so integrated with those, those particular surroundings and how he made poetry and um, novels from it. We do have time for some questions. Um, so um, if you'd like to ask uh, Maggie, um, if you have things that you would like to inquire about, wonderful to hear how speak about him from such deep personal knowledge. We are very fortunate uh, that we were able to share that. Um, yes, do well, we? Thank you very much for such a rich and wide and, wide and, uh, and touching lecture. There are so many things that one can ask you, but there can't be many, but uh, I could just ask you a couple of things, maybe. One was, you, you referred to Eliot, and mm. is also George Mackay Brown's uh, taste, only for very simple poems. Mm. And so I was interested in whether he had a friendship with Eliot, or an effect, because Eliot himself yeah. would actually be quite simple, as well as with the yes. context. Yes, he never met Eliot. Uh, which uh, he sort of almost could have done, but it, it, it didn't happen. But actually, he, he, it, despite what I read him say, I mean, he, he loved Eliot, and um, his uh, autobiography has, you know, quotes Eliot often, yeah. and yeah. Because there's a sort of complexity in Eliot, but also simplicity which comes out yes. at the end. Yes. And then the other thing um, was his depression, and, and do you think that was the factory for his creativity? Because so often with... Uh, wonderful artists uh, out of their depression, uh, like Rachmaninoff's second guest, yeah. and it's the depression which is kind of... Yes. Um, well, it's interesting 
Thanks, that's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, when he was working in the mornings, when he was writing, mm. he found he was able to hold the depression at bay. So uh, he and then it sort of crowded in in the afternoon and the evening. So um, uh, I think I don't know how much the writing was fueled by it, but it was certainly it was it was a kind of escape from it. Mm. Um, but he never. I mean, he lets very little uh, darkness into his writing. Yeah. So, I mean, compared with, I don't know, you might you might think that maybe he was, you know, had something in common with R.S. Thomas or something, but actually, mm. he doesn't. He, 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 that there is no darkness really in George's poetry, was almost he very at all. Lonely. lonely. Was he very lonely? Uh, I think, yeah. When he, you know, when he says to Stella in that letter, one is desperate with solitude. Often, I, you know, I think, I think. I mean, of course, there were people around him all the time, and the more famous he became, the more he had people hammering at his door and that kind of. So he wasn't alone very much, um, but I think he was. He was lonely. Yeah, I think he certainly would have understood what it meant to be lonely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this lady, and then that gentleman talking of darkness and poets. I'm so sorry I missed the beginning. Oh, I couldn't get it. Um, uh, Ted Hughes. I don't imagine there was a correspondence. Oh, yes. There oh, was. Absolutely, yes. No, no, Maybe more than a correspondence and, a meet and meetings. Because talking of letting darkness in, I yeah. mean, Ted Hughes almost embraced. Um, I'm just trying to think whether I've got it. No, I haven't got it with me. Um, but there's a lovely letter that Ted Hughes wrote to George. Just after Ted Hughes was made Poet Laureate, he wrote a letter to George saying, really, you would be the right person to be doing this job, <laughs> better than me. Um, Gosh, can't get better than the whole. So, uh, but and and they, yeah, they met. Uh, I think Hughes went up to be the um, poet at the St Agnes Festival, uh, and he certainly there was a, there was a lovely program recorded about George where various people spoke about him, and Hughes spoke about him a lot, mm. um, and uh, where a particular poem. Thorfinn that he loved very much that I was rather pleased that it's, it's not one of the better known poems but it's um, picked up by Kathleen Jamie in, in her collection there so um, yes there, there was there was a thing mm. between them yeah yeah and there was a question from this gentleman you, you. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, it was it was wonderful to hear George Mackay Brown's voice yes yes and to hear him reading yes all that kind of rhythmic verb yeah. But it was interesting that the version that he read there yes. was an early one. Oh, was it different from the one I gave? Slightly different. Yes. Slightly different. You yeah. make yeah. the point in the book, not just that towards the end he revived, revised his poems, yeah. but you used the word sense of them. He did. He and had I, I, it. just yeah. struck me as being slightly odd that after this wonderful life of poetry, that he, it was almost he was craving a kind of respectability. Is that right? I think what? it was more um, a kind of moral scruple right. uh, that even things like, you know, lovers lying under the buttered bag yes. of the moon, he took that out. Uh, oh. um, and there was something about a stallion, that, you know, that came out. Yeah. And uh, he, yeah, it was, a, it was a sort of phase of his life, not long before he died, that he went through everything and excised it. But he never did like his own work, looking back on it. Hardly... There was hardly anything he he really kind of approved of that he'd done. Um, 
There's one character in Green, though, who's a wonderful character, um, who suffers a kind of... She lives in a house alone, and she suffers a sort of... Um, now you would just say she was sort of mentally ill but she feels she's constantly being put on trial by ghosts from her past and that kind of thing and he um, he loved her Mrs McKee and used to get her down from the shelves sometimes have a glass of whiskey and kind of commune with this character Mrs McKee but on the whole um, he, he looked back on his writing and thought it was awful yeah thank you I, sorry a, a question from um, I only discovered him in September. Well, <laughs> Hillary was telling you, and you've come all the way from Liverpool. Yes. That's fantastic. Yes. So I've been gorging on everything I can yes. about him, yeah. including your biography, which yeah. you've written. Um, and one of the first things you learn about him is depression. Yes. The depression. Um, yes. Um, that's one of the first things. But then you mentioned briefly about the sense of humour between him and Stella. Yes. Oh, um, he had a tremendous I, sense of humour, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because that's something I'm now picking up on, and it's these little throwaway, could be a word or a line, mm. and you can feel the chuckle in his mm. voice, um, and it's a whole different, another theme. It kind of register, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then there's that smashing... Um, the letters to Gypsy. Yes, exactly. To, yeah. To the, and his love of this cat. And yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's a whole other theme going through. It's yeah, yeah. He had a he had an amazingly good sense of humour, and that was is one of the most frustrating things writing the book about. It is so difficult to capture a sense of humour and put it on the page. Mm-hmm. You can talk mm-hmm. about somebody being depressed and easily mm-hmm. um, and capture it, but capturing somebody's humour is very so hard. So face to face with him. Did he yeah. tell jokes? Did he with Yeah, 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 yeah. He was very good. He was a very good mimic, so okay. he could kind of always uh, never unkind in any way. But he was incredibly good at mimicking people. And he, yeah, um, he. I'm just trying. I'm. I'm trying to. Th- I can't sort of immediately think. But he, yeah, he was. He was. Uh, uh, I remember having a supper with him on uh, Ash Wednesday. Uh, and he was particularly hungry and he definitely was not going to do anything uh, by way of fasting and so we had this hilarious dinner that got bigger and bigger and we laughed more and more it was kind of like, you know, absolutely the opposite of our fasting and um, he, yeah Uh, yeah, I know, he was, yeah I had had a question one of the things that strikes you when you read his, his work is the is the fusion of his Catholic faith with a deep sense of prehistory, not even yes. history. Well, yes, um, uh, early medieval, going back into prehistory, um, which comes out of the kind of landscape that bore him, as it were. Mm. Is there something that you'd like to say say about that? Because he's he's both of these things, or more, or he's many of these aspects yeah. appear in his work. Yeah, I mean, with the, what I love is that he doesn't see the arrival of Christianity as a sort of new point. It's just it's just seamless. So he can go way back, and, and when Christianity comes, it's what was you know it was what was coming because of what came before. And um, but I think in Magnus, especially uh, the novel, you see that. Mm. Um, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, in that sense. 
there's there's a similarity between him and although in many ways other ways they're they're very different between him and the poet and painter David Jones who also yeah. Catholic yeah. convert yeah. also looking way back through yeah. time yeah. and seeing you know this has happened before and it prefigures yeah what exactly exactly and that's exactly what, how George saw it I think yeah yeah, yeah. So was he a Gaelic speaker? No, so. he wasn't. No, he wasn't. Um, I don't think... I mean, his his mother was speaking English when he was growing up, and the only... The hangover from her childhood was that she used to um, sort of sing to herself as she was doing the housework in a kind of... I don't think it, I don't think it was Gaelic. I don't think it was Scottish. It was some sort of her own language, but, um, but it, there, there, there was something of, of her... Highland upbringing in that, I think, but no, he no, he wasn't. Can I ask another? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, he, so he was brought up as uh, a Protestant or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Presbyterian. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, his conversion up there just seems slightly miraculous, really. Um, yeah. Was it? Um, brought on by any particular event or I mean you can't really talk about things like this I realise let alone write about them but did he ever talk to you about what um, he did, didn't talk to me he didn't talk to me about it no because by the time it was agreed I would write his biography it was actually though we didn't obviously know it at the time he, he was nearly at the end of his life um, so uh, but also I'm not sure he would have really talked to me about you know, I don't think any of these things. He wouldn't have talked to me about Stella. He wouldn't have. He was much too private. So, so, um, but uh, he did write a very beautiful article for the Tablet about why he became a Catholic. Um, and he, what he says is that it was it, it was a conversion through literature, largely. So in Edinburgh, in Edinburgh, he had some kind of uh, sessions with a Jesuit priest and that kind of thing. But I don't think that was. That was never really quite his way. He he got there through um, all kinds of different uh, bits of literature, sort of swam together. And then there are things like you know the Italian Chapel and Magnus, and you know so a lot of things were kind of so coming was, together for him. But it, and it was a very slow process. He was forty before he became a Catholic. So yes, and, and he would have worshipped in that wonderful chapel, which I've been in. It did, that's another little miracle up there. Which one is that? The Italian. Oh, the Italian chapel. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yeah, which is yeah, which is extraordinary. Yes. So yeah. Um, so there was a, there were a lot of things kind of flowing together. Yeah. When was the you said you went to mass the day after the the non-interview? Yes, but it doesn't exist. It doesn't, doesn't exist anymore. There used to be a little croft on the outskirts of Stromness. Uh, where the Catholics had mass, but it's, it, yeah. it, it hasn't. That was, I mean, it's like years ago. I, it hasn't been there for ages. I think I don't know where they go in Stromness now, but there's also there's a Catholic church, obviously in Kirkwall. Um, I'm not sure where the Catholics go in Stromness. They get the bus to <laughs> get the bus to Kirkwall. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe that's right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, yes, one and, and one more question from Tony. Recording again, please. <laughs> oh, well, if you could, yeah, it'd be lovely. Would well, you want to hear a different poem? Yes. Uh, hang on. If we, uh, that will be a good a good way to finish the evening. And please, once we do that, um, you have uh, 
various works by George Mackay Brown and, of course, Maggie's uh, biography of him, if you're interested in purchasing it. I hope that many of you will want to go and deepen or revisit uh, George Mackay Brown's work as a result of Maggie's lecture tonight, which okay, has been so full and so rich for us. Thank you very much. So uh, if we might listen to number five, which is called The Death of Peter Essen, and Peter Essen was the tailor um, with whom George's father worked in Stromness, and a very lovely character full of stories. The Death of Peter Essen, tailor, town librarian, free calculator. Peter had some immortal cloth, it seemed, fashioned and stitched, for so long had he sat heraldic on his bench. We never dreamed it was his shroud that he was busy at. Well, Peter knew his thousand books would pass grey into dust, but still a tinker's tale, as hard as granite and as sweet as grass, told over reeking pipes, outlasts them all. The free kirk cleaves grey houses, Peter's ark freighted for heaven, gale blown with psalm and prayer. The predestined needle quivered on the mark, the wheels spun true, the seventieth rock was near. Peter, I mourned, early on Monday last, there came a wave and stood above your mast. 